verses 1 through to 26. So, this is Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had come to, to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, I know that Messiah, or Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, I've only got this week and next week before we uh, have a little break with that. So, um, yeah, I hope you've been enjoying this series about John showing why he believes, why he believes and puts his trust in Jesus. This is the Gospel writer John. And he wants everybody else to know this is why you can believe too. And this is another one of the just living examples of why we can trust in Jesus. Just a couple of little uh, things I want to share with you that's coming up before we get into that. Uh, ben mentioned we've got an AGM coming up next week, some meeting at that meeting. Uh, 
We appoint a committee of management. So it's a committee who looks after all the logistics of our church as far as how does this church run, our staff, our finances, things like that. And I'm just going to put out a plea there because I'm part of that committee that um, if you're gifted in administration, we would love to have you on our committee. Um, we're not asking you to do anything exceptional, but it is helpful when you've got people on that committee who just would put their head down and make things happen, things like policies. Uh, so as we grow bigger, yeah, the doing stuff is getting more complete, but it's the behind the scenes organising stuff. We'd love to have a handful. Uh, also, Ben mentioned the newcomers morning tea straight after the service. This is my special welcome to, uh, invitation to you too if you're visiting. Doesn't matter if it's your first day or you've been around for quite a while, if you haven't been to one, uh, it's just a good opportunity to hear the journey we're on as a church and just to find out is this the church for me? Is the kind of question that that's asking. So that's after the service, 10 30, up the stairs. We'll, we'll have just for an hour or so. But we'd love to be sharing our story with you and we'd love to get to know you and hear your story with that as well. Speaking of stories, this is an amazing story and let me pray and then we'll uh, get into it. Dear Father God, we just thank you that, that you are a good, good God, that you are a loving Father and you know us. So Lord, as we sit here this morning, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through this passage, that you know what's going on in each of our lives, that we pray that you would reveal yourself to us, to know how to hand over to you, how to draw near to you, and how to find this living water so we'll never go thirsty again. Amen. Unfortunately, it's a growing trend that uh, this online bullying is becoming such an issue. You know, it's only a generation ago, we didn't even have this whole social media thing, but yet now it's growing and growing, this real problem of people putting themselves out there, whether it's a photo or a statement or you know, newspaper reports about something, and other people feel like they're invited to come in and speak of this person and just say what we really think. So they come on and be under the cover of being anonymous, they just really pull somebody down, they can be critical, really bag someone out, to the point where it's led to uh, people committing suicide because they've put themselves out there just to be knocked down and hammered down for the ask, what's the point? And they just walk away burnt. But it's not only through social media. I think all of us have probably experienced this sort of thing to some level in all the relationships we walk into, whether it's at school, university, going to a workplace, in going to a new church, you kind of asking a question, how much can I reveal myself? If I put myself right out there, am I going to be hammered down? Who can I trust? Who can I do life with together? Because, you know, once you've been burnt once and burnt twice or hurt, you stop trusting, don't you? You start putting walls up, and when those walls come up, you just say, it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth putting myself out there. It's not worth being known for somebody to be critical of me, to beat me down and just to, to critique my character all the time. So we put these walls up and we stop letting people in. Now this becomes a problem, particularly when we start talking about God and his desire to have a relationship with us. If we go back to the start of John, John's Gospel, and he lays out John chapter 1 from verse 3, he gives us a bit of a picture on what Jesus' mission is. That through him, this is a bit of a revision if you've been here right from the start, let's get you up to speed. This is John saying this is what Jesus is all about. That through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That he's creator over all things, everything in creation. But in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, 
or darkness has not understood it, or darkness has not accepted it. So this Jesus, creator, source of life, has come into the world. This world of darkness, darkness being ignorance, we don't know about God, certainly spiritually dark. Uh, but when he does come, there's this question of do we understand him? Does he understand us? Is another question. But if he comes into this dark world, what does it mean that he knows me? Even when he starts using language that he wants a relationship with me, what does that look like? Because other relationships have been burnt. And we want to put walls up. And we want to protect ourselves. So we hide ourselves. In some ways, we're happy to be in darkness because nobody knows the full picture. But when Jesus comes, do we want to be in darkness and protect ourselves? Or what does it look like if God himself comes into our lives and he knew everything and he's inviting us into that relationship? That's a bit scary to be vulnerable to somebody who knows everything. We were worried, do I put my walls up and keep him at a distance? Or what does it look like to actually have a relationship with Jesus and he does know us? And he wants us to come near to him. See, this story, as John outlines it in his first chapter of the book, it's kind of, you know, this big picture, oh, yeah, it's theological ideas, you know, it's big sort of general stuff that can easily go over our heads. But as we've seen in this next few chapters, John 2, John chapter 3, John chapter 4, he fleshes out this is what it looks like. So now he gets to this journey where Jesus meets this woman at the well, we actually see what this looks like. What does it look like for Jesus to come into my world, to my darkness, in a my mess? What am I going to expect from him? And this is where we pick the, the story up in chapter 4, where Jesus is entering into the darkness. And we see it's the scene sort of set in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, where we're told that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he's going from Judea to another part of the country, to Jewish parts of the country, and Jews should not go through uh, Samaritan country. But there's something interesting going on, because John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, actually, if you look at your map, I didn't call map up here, but if you look at your geography, and if you read any of the guide, the historians about that day, they go, well, actually, he didn't have to go through Samaria. It's just a little detour, and you can go around Samaria. You don't have to go through it. In fact, Jews, it was very shameful to go through an area like Samaria. You just didn't want to do it. They're the enemy, in a sense. But John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. And I think there's something going on here. That God's got Jesus, the Father God's got Jesus on a mission. He's the light of the world going into darkness. And where is he going to find the darkest place around? Father sending him to Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. So that's where God was sending him. See, Samaria is the darkest place around, according to the Jews of that day. See, you've got these different people groups. Israel is kind of one of the tribes of Israel. Go back earlier in the Old Testament. The Samaritans were a part of Israel, they were part of God's family. But what happened over uh, hundreds of years, so about 600 BC, um, there was the Syrians come in and conquered all of the land. And the Israelites, the, what's Israel uh, in Jesus' time, they were like, no, if we get taken out of our land into another country, we're just going to make sure we're still living for God. We're still going to live for God. We're not going to uh, mix up with that, mix into the other nations because, because they don't follow our God, the God of the Bible. So they're going to stay within themselves. But the Samaritans thought, okay, we're in this other land. Let's make the most of it. So they were marrying Samaritans, you know, connecting in with the uh, 
I'm sorry, marrying the um, Syrians, just integrating with the Syrian culture. And then over time, the Babylonians come in to, uh, they conquer them as well, scatter them again, and the Israelites go, no, no, we've got to stay faithful at one true God, story of uh, Daniel, I'm going to follow this God, I'm not going to take the Babylonian gods. But then the, Syri- the Samaritans are like, ah, oh, whatever, I'm going to take their gods, and you know, so they took on Babylonian gods as well. So when all that settled down, all that fighting settled down, and they're allowed to come back to their own country, the true Israelites, we're going, hey, we need to get back to Jerusalem, we're going to rebuild the temple, get back to the worshipping the God of the Bible. But the Samaritans, they're now like the half-cousins. They're intermarried with the Syrians, they've got Babylonian gods, they confusion about uh, who is God and their, their style of worship and things like that. So now they're, they're the half-cousins that have gone off the rails and the Israelites didn't want anything to do with them. It's like, you stay away, we don't like you. You're pretenders that you're still a part of the family, but you're not a part of the family. They really pushed them away hard. In fact, the Samaritans were so on the nose that uh, it was one of the Jewish laws, not in Scripture, but something they wrote later, that if you were in the marketplace and you were selling your products, say if you're a, you made pottery and you made dishes and things, and you lay all your pottery out on the ground in the marketplace and people would walk by and buy things, if a Samaritan walked by and their shadow went over your pottery, you would have to smash your pottery and destroy it. It was contaminated. It's no good. Samaritan has walked past. In fact, as we go through the Gospel of John, Jesus, as he gets in more fights with the Jewish leaders, Jesus gets accused of being two people. He's accused of being Satan himself, which is pretty offensive. Jesus, the Son of God, being called Satan. But something equally as offensive, they even call Jesus a Samaritan. We read it and go, whatever. But no, to them, Samaritans, they're just like, they're pretenders. They're not real believers. They're pretenders. They're the dark side. They're an outcast people, according to the Jews. But for Jesus to go into Samaria, he's like, you shouldn't be there for a good Jewish boy. You shouldn't be going there. But Jesus not only goes to an outcast people group, he finds an outcast person amongst the outcast people group. Because he meets this person uh, at the well. As we see it in verse 7. See, he comes to the well, it's, uh, it's 12 noon, it's the middle of the day, and the way the well works in that culture, remember there's uh, it's first century Palestine, it's hot, there's no running water, there's no plumbing in your house. You have to, at some point in the day, go down to the well, get your water, and bring it home. And in that culture, like, why would you turn a, a task that you've got to do every day, day after day? Why would you turn it into a social event? So it was usually uh, the lady's job to go and get the water for the household, and they, would, they didn't want to do it in the middle of the day, that makes sense, so they'd do it in the morning. And everybody would get together at you the know, same time every morning, gather your buckets, have a good chat as you walk out down to the well, catch up on all the news that's happened since yesterday, get your water and come up. It was a very social thing, getting the water in one of these towns. Nobody would go at noon, like it's a hot part of the day. The only reason you go and get water in the, at noon is if, is if you weren't included in the ladies' group in the morning. As in you've been shunned, you've been outcast from their group. It's such a shameful to hang around them because they're probably gossiping about you or just trying to push away. They don't want to know you. It's just easier to go and get your water another time of day than with the ladies in the morning. 
So here we find it's midday, it's 12, uh, and against all protocol, Jesus is at the well, and a lady comes to get her water. He asks her for a drink, and it's midday, there is somebody there with a bucket to get the water out, why wouldn't you ask for a drink? Uh, but it is breaking all protocol. One, you know, the way men speak to women in those days, you know, it's very like, should you be even talking to me? Two, he's a Jew. And she can see he's a Jew. And she's, he's talking to her. And he's asking her for a drink out of her cup, basically. And it's like, and she even knows this. She's going, well, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. Like, you're breaking all protocol. You shouldn't be doing this. You know the thing about the glass jar, the, 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 the jars that my shadow hits and you've got to smash it? And have you want a drink out of one of my cups? Like, are you for real? It's almost like she's pushing him away. Like, this is like coming into darkness, as John's saying. You come into this, and this, this is weird. This doesn't feel right. But then in verse 10, Jesus explains, Look, if you knew me, if you knew me, you'd be asking me for the living water. Because I can give you water that you won't thirst again. This is John showing us this idea of the light coming into the darkness, and the darkness doesn't recognise him. She doesn't say, oh, no, you're this Messiah, you're the Son of God, and bow to him. No, it's like, who are you? Who are you to promise living water? You haven't even got a bucket. Who are you to claim you can have living water when our father Jacob gave us this great wealth? You can do something better than our father Jacob. So she's pointing it back at him. Who are you? Why should I listen to you? Then the conversation goes on from verse 15, where Jesus reaches out to her. Uh, in verse 15, where, uh, verse 13, sorry. When Jesus reaches out to her, just to explain what he's offering. That everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, talking about the water in the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never go thirsty. I'm actually offering you something, his son. I want to give you something. And something that's better than this, well, yeah. Now she's amazed at that. She's like, man, if you got this water, so give me this water that I won't have to be thirsty again. I won't have to come down to this well to draw water again. I think she's thinking, man, if you can install plumbing into my house, you know, I could just get water anytime that I don't have to come down here. I'd be ashamed. But it's all about this thirst. She's I know you're thirsty. Whether it's thirsty for water or thirsty for something else, I know you're thirsty. And I can fix that. I can quench that thirst, he's saying. As this conversation is rolling on, he can see her needs. And she's sort of starting to drop the walls down a little bit. Yeah, maybe I can trust this guy. If this guy is different, he's not just criticizing or bad names, he's actually offering me something. So Jesus enters her world relationally then. And he says some amazing things in verse 16. When he says, I know, I go call your husband. And, and bring him back. She says, I have no husband. And he goes on to say, yeah, you're right. You've had uh, six husbands, and the man you're with now, five husbands, sorry. A lot of husbands. Five husbands. Lost count after four. Five husbands, and the man you're with now, you're not even married to him. But you're right in what you're saying. Now, it's interesting that he, he puts this out there for her, because you'd expect him to say, good Jewish boy, come into the Samaritans, 
Jews come into Samaria, they're critical of them. They smash them down. You guys don't know what you worship, you're half-cousins, you're not following the true God. And look at the way you're living. You're expecting him to say, what are you doing with your life? You've been married five times, and you're not even married to this guy. What are you doing? But he's critical of her, judging her and smashing her down. That's what you would expect. If you're reading this in John's time, in the first century, particularly if you're a Jew, you go, Jesus, go in there and get him. If you're a good Jew, you're going to smash her. But he doesn't. He says, you're right in what you say. I know all the story. And it's not a surprise to him. I know the story. See, if we were in her shoes, and I think she'd be a bit shaken at the knees, it's very fearful when people know our mess. That it's easily, you know, people can be critical of us, to judge us. You know, for Jesus to put that on Facebook to all his Jewish mates. Hey, ran to the Samaritan woman the other day. Guess how many times she got married? No, three times, four, five times, it's six times. Like just paying her out. You're very easy to do that. And we're scared of that. If we drop our guard towards people who are going to go on Facebook and you know, tell their mates, now, are we going to become a joke when people get into our lives and know our story? That's our fear. There's stuff in our lives that's not a good look, but yet Jesus doesn't do anything bad with it. He just affirms her honesty. You're right. See, sometimes we're afraid that if we open up ourselves and people know our story, they're going to trash us and smash us down. But there are other times when people find out our story, and we realise they're not judging us, they're not looking down on us, then it's actually very freeing and liberating to know that you can trust yourself with someone, that you can get it off your chest, and they're okay with that. That Jesus is not smacking her down, but he's on the journey with her, and that's very freeing for her. You might have experience when uh, you share something with a good friend, and I'll say good friend, because sometimes we really open up to the rawness of our life. We don't do that on our first conversation. Sometimes it takes years to get a good friendship, to have that trust factor enough to to really pour yourself what's going on in your life and what what you're really thinking deep down. To know that they're on the journey with you and not smacking you down. It's a good feeling when it works. But Jesus coming into her life talking about some very personal stuff. And we've got to remember back in that John 1, when, Jesus, when John is explaining who Jesus is, that he's the creator of the world, that he, all things were created through him, not just the land, not just the horse, not just the village, but Jesus has even created her, and he knows her, he knows what he's created, and he knows what's going on in, his, in her life, and he cares that he's not sitting there in judgment, but he's actually drawing nearer to her. To, do, to help her. Since last week we uh, went through the end of chapter 3, just before this, has John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And it's a well-known verse. But verse 17, we often forget, what's verse 17 say? It goes on, how does Jesus fit into that picture? John 17 says, and I have to read it so I can memorize it as well. John 7, 3, 17 it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So for Jesus, there's no hint of criticism of her. There's no hint of bullying. But he's saving her. He's getting her on the journey. I know your story. 
Jesus has come into her world. And for her, what does she do with that? Because on the one hand, it's kind of creepy when other people know stuff about you. But for her, she sees that he's on her side and she finds it very liberating that he is for me. And her reaction, uh, we'll see this in next week's passage, but uh, further down in verse 39, that she goes back into the village after this conversation. She goes back into the village. You know, these are the people that know her story. Now, in the village, everybody knows everybody's story. They know her story. They've been to every wedding. They've been over it. And they've outcast her. They, they don't want her mixing with their, their wives and, and their young ladies. Uh, so she's an outcast among them. But she says, I met this guy down in the well, and he told me everything I did. They're her exact words. He told me everything I did. But he didn't push me away. He didn't treat me up like an outcast. But he showed love to me. He didn't walk away, but he accepted me. She takes this as a very liberating experience, very freeing experience. He knows my story. Everybody else pushes me away, but he didn't. There's something about him. This is not what I thought the Messiah would be like. But he would accept even me. So she, she accepts this and is amazed at his uh, love and compassion through that. But before she goes back to the village, there's one more part of this conversation, and that's a conversation about worship. What's this got to do with the whole story? It is actually important because the topic of worship, you get a Jew and a Samaritan together, they're just going to fight. And what they're going to fight about is usually worship. Because the Jews, they've gone back to Jerusalem, they've built the temple, we're worshiping the true God, the living God of the Bible. The Samaritans, they've gone, they're not allowed into Jerusalem, let alone the temple. They've been expelled from there. So they've gone to their own mountain and they've set up their own temple. And there's this real feud. Who's worshipping the real God? And this feud's got so great, you can see this when she brings it up in, in verse 19, uh, when she, she raises this question. She's almost looking for a fight. She's almost like drawing the line in the sand. She's going, do you realise what side you're on? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we're worshipping different areas, we don't get on. And this is what we always fight about, you're actually on a different team to me. I think she's actually giving Jesus, almost pushing him away. Don't get too close to me, because you know you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, and we're never going to agree. But Jesus doesn't get into that argument like every other Jew. We're right, we're wrong. I mean, that does give a bit of a pushback, he goes, <clears throat> tells her, uh, that, that the Jews do have the truth, but salvation is from the Jews. He's not saying we're right, you're wrong, and you're ever going to be forever going to be wrong. It's like no, there is a message of salvation that's going to come from from the Jewish line and save um, people in the darkest places. But then he goes on to talk about this this new idea, this new style of worship that is not about the mountain or where the mountain is, but it's about where your heart is. Excuse me. We can see it from verse 21. <clears throat> uh, so in verse 23, pick up. Um, Yet a time is coming, as now has come. The true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Well, they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and worshippers must worship in, in the spirit and in truth. Now, what is this? This more theological, big ideas, concepts that you can't get a head around. But he's actually answering something a little bit cryptic he said before. 
when he talked about, you know, I can give you water and it's living water, and you kind of go, what does he mean? What's this living water look like? Actually, living water is a phrase that uh, comes up a few times in the Bible, three times in the Old Testament. God says, God's talking to his people, and he calls himself the living water. So, you know, it's that idea of I can come to him and as water is refreshing, that's totally a coincidence, I need a water to say. That's a good illustration, isn't it? When you're thirsty, you need water. And God's saying, I'm not just a mountain of water, I'm a living water. I'm living water in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament, later on in John, Jesus is going to explain uh, the living water is the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit that comes. So when we hear this living water, it's this not just you know, something's going to quench my thirst or quench my life, but it's actually a relationship thing that he's talking about. And it's through the Spirit, and it's got to do with the bigger picture of God Himself. That's what's going on. And Jesus is saying, you know, this is worship. It's not going to the right mountain or the right temple. It's actually uh, a relationship. That God's Spirit is actually a part of you, enters you. And, and you know the Spirit. And it's through the Spirit you know the Father. So he sort of unpacks this in many different ways. The relationship with Spirit, with Father, and, and it's, of course it's through Jesus. Jesus is right in front of her as well. You're part of this relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is God's love language. If, it has, if you've heard that language, how we all uh, give love and receive love slightly differently. Well, this is a way God the Father, His love language, the way He wants to be worshipped. He's like, come into the Spirit, accept the Spirit, and He'll bring you to me through the Son, and that, that'll work as well. We saw that just a couple of weeks ago when we saw uh, in the last chapter when uh, Jesus was talking about having to be born again and being born of the Spirit. And we saw, hey, look, He's talking about something that happened in Ezekiel in the Old Testament where the Spirit came in and gave us new hearts, taking our heart of stone and gave us a true and living heart. That's the Spirit does its work and brings us to the Father. Now, this is, this is sort of blowing away the world in the first century because a, a, a Jew in the first century reading this would go, what a Samaritan is going to become a true worshipper of God? Really? Like, that's just rocking the world. Jesus should be saying, you are a Samaritan. You'll never be a part of this. I mean, look at your life. Really? Do you think you'll be a true worshipper? That's what we're expecting Jesus to say. But no, he doesn't. He invites her into that. This is what true worship is. And you can be a part of it, is the language he's using. It's a relationship. And guess what? God has got his arms open, ready to welcome you. A Samaritan. A woman. It's been beaten down, beaten down, relationship after relationship, messiness of her life. And God the Father's got his arms open. Through the Spirit, you can come to me, he says. This is a completely new idea. We see in verse 25 how this conversation uh, wraps up, where she says, Hey, look, this is way too heavy for me. I know this Messiah's coming, God's prophet, you know, God's king is going to come. He'll explain everything. Jesus turns around and says, You know what? I'm that guy. And I'm explaining everything to you. So it's the truth. It's a real picture of God entering the darkness. The village, Samaria, outcast town. This woman, an outcast woman, amongst her town. She's been pushed away. But yet, she knows that he knows me. 
through this one conversation. God himself, the Messiah, he knows me. He knows all my mess. And guess what? He didn't push me away. Not even accepted. That's radical. That's radical. And Jesus offers his living water. <clears throat> Jesus offers this living water. <clears throat> That's his, um, man, I need some living water right now. <clears throat> but it's not just water. She, I, he knows she's thirsty. And just through what he knows of her, what we, we know of her, through relationship after relationship. Can you imagine being in her shoes, going to one marriage, doing the marriage vows? They had a formal ceremony. Do marriage vows, you know, with this ring I wear you, I give myself to you, going, this is a man I'm going to drop my walls, I'm going to be vulnerable to, I'm going to share life together. But then for whatever reason, she gets dumped, she gets pushed aside, he moves on, and she's given himself, given herself to him, and she's been burned. Oh, the second time will be better. I found this guy, this will be much better. I give myself to you, again, left on the rubbish heap. Third time, fourth time, fifth time. Again, again, from relationship to relationship, she's been burnt and hurt. Imagine the walls going up and just going, is it worth it? But on the flip side, she's got this hole in her heart that she keeps going back. I'm not complete. This is what our culture tells us, at least. You're not complete unless you're with somebody. You're not complete unless you're married or you've got your lifetime partner. You're not complete. This is this hole in your heart that you want to be filled. You don't want to be lonely. You want a companion. That you want it so bad that you'll just chase, chase one relationship after the next relationship after the next relationship because they're going to fill this hole in my heart. But yet, what Jesus is saying, I know your history, I know your past, and no marriage is going to fill that hole. No man or no woman is going to fill that hole that's in your heart. But he says, I've got the living water because it's this God shaped hole in your heart that I can give you the Holy Spirit that will satisfy me. See, we do it too. We chase all this stuff, whether it's relationships, marriage, whatever. <clears throat> and we think that's going to satisfy our thirst. Uh, I'll listen a little bit to a guy called Ray Elliott. He's a preacher down in Sydney. And he tells a story when, before he got into ministry, he was a counsellor, worked for a charitable organisation. And he's telling a story about, <clears throat> about this woman some years ago who uh, was in a, uh, married to a guy. Uh, he was full-time worker, uh, but he would blow every cent on gambling and alcohol. There was no money for the house, to run the house or anything. He would just use it for his weekends. That was funny on his weekends. So she would have to go to all these different charities in her area to get food, get clothing, get any financial handouts. He was given her nothing. And she would just come, not only the first time, just embarrassed because she's not kind of meant to be on a poverty line and got an income, but embarrassed now, I have to come here, my father, my Husband's offering nothing. Um, and she would just come week after week, month after month, and turn into year after year until one day they had a gun in the house and she took the gun and shot her husband in the head. Not just once, but twice. Shot him in the head. She had enough, she was done. Now, through amazing circumstances, he survived. He lived. And she got charged and she was going to go to court, but she was out on bail. And she'd still come to the charity, and he'd still talk to her as a counsellor. And uh, after six months, and he was out of hospital, now able to come home, and uh, she, she talked to Ray and she said, look, uh, I'm thinking of going back to him. 
Right. I've done with him before, now I'm thinking of going home. Back to him. Now, he'd not, he'd not changed. He was still the same guy. He hadn't reformed, not a reformed gambler or alcoholic. He was the same guy that she was going to walk back into trouble with. And Ray said, oh, I'm just in shock. I said, why? Why would you move back into him? He's, he's the same guy you try to kill not that long ago. And her answer was, well, half a marriage is better than no marriage. I'm going back. And he said, at that moment, he says, I could see this, this dryness, this thirst for fulfilment, this thirst for satisfaction, the thirst to become complete and to be satisfied with the idea that half a marriage is still going to be better than no marriage at all, thinking that that's going to quench the thirst. But you can see here, it's, it's almost like Jesus is coming and going, there's more to life, and I want more for you. Do you want more for you? Because you can chase relationships, you can chase the big bucks, you can chase wealth, you can chase fame, you can chase all those things. But it's not going to quench the thirst. It's going to hunger for more and more. And be satisfied, well, with half is good enough, as good as it gets. But Jesus saying, no, I can fill that hole. Fill that hole in your heart. Now, I think when we come to knowing the God of the universe wants to know me, wants to come into my life, and he's the light shining into my darkness, I get a bit scared of that. Because of, I think there's two things going on. One is I actually don't want him to come into my darkness because I'm actually pretty comfortable in my darkness. It's almost like I'm happy with, with having half fulfilment, that I can find my pleasures through the world, through earthly things. And that's if it's not filling my hole, but, you know, I'd rather have that because I'm not sure what God's going to offer me. So I actually push Jesus away. I actually like the darkness in my heart. I don't want it. I don't want him to know it, basically. Or the other problem we have is just to go, actually, I don't know whether Jesus wants to come into my heart because I've got all this baggage, all this hurt and grief that I don't think God will draw near to me until I clean it all up. But we never get around to cleaning it up. Well, what we see here, Jesus sees our darkness, and not only is he not put off about it, but he wants to enter into our mess. He sees our hurt. He sees our thirst. And it doesn't make him come as a critical judge. He says, I've come to fix your problem, not to judge you about it. I've come to fill that hole. I'm going to give you this living water, the Holy Spirit, that will draw you nearer, nearer into that relationship with God to fill that hole. There's something interesting going on in this whole narrative of John talking about water and thirst. Because we often talk about uh, sin and um, uh, being made righteous, by the way. Jesus gives his perfection to us, and he takes our sinfulness, our darkness, and he takes that to the cross. Now, the metaphor even goes a little bit further, even related to the woman of the well, because he says, you're thirsty. I know you're thirsty, but I've got something that will quench your thirst, give you living water. I give you the Holy Spirit. But he also says, not only can I quench your thirst, but how about I take your messiness, I take your darkness, and I take your thirst away from you. At the end of John, John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus is pinned up on the cross, He's dying, he's about to take his last breath. Uh, yeah, John 19, 28. Is that on the PowerPoint there? 
Excellent. Uh, so we're told just before Jesus dies on the cross, later knowing that all was now complete. He'd done all his mission. Complete through the cross. And so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. He's about to die. I think thirst would be the last thing on his mind. But going, oh no, he's fulfilling scripture by saying, I am thirsty. The funny thing about this is, scholars that are much smarter than me have gone, we're actually not sure what scriptures have been fulfilled here. There's no, nothing in the Old Testament that says, oh, my chosen one will be thirsty before he dies. It's not there. Except for when we look in this story, when it's talking about thirst and the need to be uh, have this living water. And Jesus saying, hey, look, at the cross, when I'm taking a sin, I'm taking a mess, I'm taking a darkness, I'm also taking a thirst. That actually it's not just the story of the woman, but it's the story of the Bible, where Jesus uh, is coming to save people from their sin and their mess. And through the cross, he's not only allowing the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, but he's actually taking our mess with him. I mean, I just feel like that's so freeing. The mess that I want to hide from him, the mess that I want to keep in my dark corner, I can actually say, Jesus, you know what? I can actually be honest with you and show you that mess so I know you're not going to push me away. And you're going to deal with that mess for me. And it's so freeing that he's not beating me down, he's not pushing me away, but he's trying to help me. He's on the journey with me. That's what Jesus has done. And imagine then, Meeting somebody here around us that we've got this friend that we can do life together, that's experienced this, that's uh, had their mess dealt with, that they've got the Holy Spirit, that we can do life together here on earth. That we've got that friend going, I'm really struggling with this, can we talk about it, talk to God about it, and pray about it, and help us work through this stuff. Imagine if we had a friend sitting here in this room, that we could do this journey together as we're all growing in Jesus. But then imagine not just for one friend, imagine if we had a room full of people that have been on this journey that recognise, hey, my life's messy too, but I just praise God for Jesus because he's dealing with it. Imagine if we had a church full of relationships like that because that's what we as the church are called to do. That as people come into this door, and we don't know, we only know what they want to tell us, but whether it's messy or whether you know, it's pretend shiny, then we just go, we don't care your history, we don't care your past, we don't care what's going on in your life. But we do want to bring you to Jesus. We're not going to judge you, but we want to help you. And we know the one we can help in Jesus himself. That's the church we're called to be. Not just you and me and a few others having this experience. It's all of us. And showing the world that we've got this awesome God who doesn't push us away but accepts us. In a few moments, we're going to do what we call uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, we don't do this every week, but we do it every now and again. We time it where it's just really it's just a natural outworking of what we've just heard in the scriptures. And this is certainly a natural outworking of scriptures. Where Jesus has said, I'm going to take your thirst. I'm going to give you the spirit so you might live. Uh, so we remember the cross. That's what the, the, the bread and the juice is about. When Jesus uh, used this as an example uh, the night before, he was sent to the cross. That he was sitting around the table with his disciples and uh, having a meal together, and he held up the bread, and he broke the bread in front of them like that. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. And his body's going to be broken, so we might have life. 
but he held our tongue. He says, this cup, this cup is a new cup, new coverage, because of my blood shed for you. And then he says, whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember what he's done for us on the cross. I'm going to invite you here this morning to come participate with us. As we're eating the bread, drinking it's bread and juice, there's nothing magical about it. Even if you're gluten-free, uh, there's, there's gluten-free stuff there. I could say Samaritan, you could have that stuff. But you know, we're all on the same level, right? No matter who you are, where you come from, you can eat and drink. But remember what we're doing here. We're actually saying, Jesus, I trust you. I give myself to you and what you've done across from me. I want to drink. I want to eat. I know this is only a small cup, small bit of bread, but symbolic of something much, much greater of being satisfied. Finding your true contentment and finding a future in Him. If that's you this morning, say, I want to trust Jesus. I'm not going to take Him seriously right now. So I feel like I'm safe in Him. And I feel like I don't find fulfillment in Him. If you're here this morning and you're not sure about who Jesus is and what we're doing here, feel free, don't, don't come up the front and, and take it. That's, that's all right. We're so glad you're here. So glad to share this message with you. But if, you, if it is you, Please, we're going to give you a few moments to come forward. We think it's important that we do it up the front to, um, yeah, you've actually got to make a choice to get off your seat to say, yes, I want this Jesus. To come up the front, nothing weird's going to happen up front, just grab juice, bread, uh, go back, sit at this, uh, back at your seat, and when we've all got our bread and juice, uh, we're all going to eat and drink together. So just hang on to it so we've all been served. Now, eat and drink together, because that's what families do. But the reason we're doing it is to hey, Jesus, Thank you. I want to point to you. Have it on Friday, and I'll give you a few moments to do Dear Father, we thank you for your amazing love that is so different to what we experience in this world. But we thank you through this story, the story of a woman that, you know, on one hand she's so far away, but on the other hand she's, we're so much like her. Well, we just thank you. Thank you that you didn't push her away and you don't push us away. Thank you that we can pour our heart out to you and you won't, yeah, just criticise us and bag us out so much of what the church has done in the past. But Lord, thanks for accepting us. Thanks for giving us a church. Thanks for giving us the opportunity that we might love each other and build each other up and not be critical of each other. Lord, help us to put that into practice and we need your spirit to do that. We need your spirit to find fulfilment and satisfaction. But Lord, we just fall at your cross now. 